I'm not sure where you want to start, but I'd love to just jump into some of this effective date stuff um, just because it's deeply, I don't know why, but it is deeply, deeply interesting to me. Um, I think it's sort of this kind of like rules lawyer in me of like, how does the, how does the board game work? Can you do a referendum on a budget bill? You can't. It's, so that's, that's the, the whole thing, thing. Right? So, like, yeah. so if you look at the effective date... Hello, Alaska. This is Pat Race. And this is Matt Buxton. And this is a podcast about Alaska. So uh, today uh, we're going to we're going to kind of get off in the weeds on some stuff. Um, and, you know, Matt, I, I'm a big fan of board games. I, I got a little shop downtown. I sell board games. And I think that, like, there's something to having a set of rules and following those rules and kind of playing that game within the bounds of those rules that uh, I don't I don't know why my brain clicks into that like it's just nice to know this is what you're supposed this is what you're allowed to do these are the parameters (laughs) and you can be as creative as you want within those parameters and there's something about like creativity within a set of parameters that i that i've always enjoyed um yeah my my little brothers would uh know well about my ability to not only know all the rules but know how to basically push them to the very breaking points of the intent behind those rules in ways that maybe like game designers didn't really plan out, but uh, allow me to win. And that's the most important part is winning, right? <laughs> so that's the best part about board games is winning every single one you play. Oh my God. And just destroying relationships. Yeah. Yeah. Got to, got to win at all costs. Um, so I think that the, um, you know, I, as someone who's spent some time in, in board game forums, debating rules and like trying to understand them um, and, I think that there's something about this recent discussion of the effective date clause in Alaska's um, in Alaska politics that really hooked me. And so um, just to summarize, I'm going to start out by reading a little um, a little snippet from Jesse Keel's newsletter, uh, The Real Deal with Jesse Keel. And this is from his June 18th newsletter. Everyone's got newsletters now. <laughs> Do they? Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> OK, let's see. Where are we? June 18th. Um, He's, he, so first of all, he starts out, and I'm, I'm pretty sure this is directed uh, squarely at, at people like me and Will Muldoon. He says, if you watch the legislature's floor sessions much, you need a real hobby. <laughs> Ouch. Oh, it hurts. Oh. <laughs> but also, you'll have noticed a lot of bills need a separate vote for the effective date. An effective date is just what it sounds like. It says when a law will take effect. And if a bill doesn't have one, it takes effect 90 days after the governor signs it. When you want a date other than that default, you need a two-thirds majority instead of a simple majority. Um, so what what happened in the legislature this year is that the governor uh, basically said the budget was broken because it didn't get an effective date clause and that it wouldn't take effect for another 90 days. So Jesse goes on to say, the budget works a little differently. Because the re- regular session ends about two months before the next fiscal year starts, we always tack on a pair of suspenders to the effective date, a retroactivity provision. That way, if the effective date doesn't get its supermajority vote, or the budget doesn't get signed until late, government doesn't have to shut down. It's a good thing we do that because this year the effective dates passed this in the Senate but failed in the House. Attorney generals since the 1970s have analyzed the law and given retroactivity for spending bills a green light. The legislature's nonpartisan legal services team agreed. The Alaska Supreme Court ruled decades ago that retroactivity doesn't need a two-thirds vote to pass. 
If you want an example of how governors rely on retroactivity to spend money before they have a bill passed, just look at Governor Dunleavy's supplemental budget bill he sent us this February. So on Wednesday, the budget passed. Legislators piled onto planes and flew home, knowing they'd headed off a shutdown. Until on Thursday, Governor Dunleavy announced that everyone for 40-plus years had been wrong, and his February proposal was wrong, and the budget is utterly unsignable because the effective dates failed. Okay, he didn't say the part about how he himself proposed retroactivity. Maybe he forgot. His press conference implied heavily that only a fool could read the Constitution any other way. Even if he's right about that, why keep it a secret until after the voting was done? If he had mentioned his novel reading before the House had voted, legislators could have worked accordingly. After all, knowing the consequences is a big part of any negotiation. And I'll just end it there. But um, but basically what, what happened is they passed the budget and everyone went home. And then the governor said, surprise, we in, we're interpreting the law a little differently this year. And uh, that means that we can't implement this budget for another 90 days, which means the government will be shut down for that duration because there will be no funding. Uh, anything you want to add to that? Does that? Does that sum it up? No, that's actually a pretty good sum up there. Um, you know, yeah, I think the the big thing, you know, from a political sort of standpoint is that I mean, the whole announcement of his novel novel reading of everything caught everyone really by surprise because again, they were kind of operating on this like thinking for like weeks at that point that they didn't need to get didn't have to get this thing. It was a nice to have but not a need to have. And so kind of springing it up on them was this really kind of you know, unusual move. And, you know, it's a reason we nearly, you know, we really were looking like a government shutdown is going to happen there. Yeah. And, and it was, uh, so when they sprung this, I, I, my immediate gut reaction, because I don't like Governor Dunleavy is like, oh man, this guy's awful. What shenanigans is he up to? Uh, he's, he's obviously wrong. And then, and then I read the, the constitutional bit about the effective date and, and, I kind of started agreeing with him, which was which is weird. So, so Article you pop, Two, section popped 18, out your rule book. I know Article yeah. Two, Section Eighteen of the effect says of the Constitution of Alaska says under effective date it says laws passed by the legislature become effective ninety days after enactment. The legislature may, by concurrence of two thirds of the membership of each house, provide for another effective date. So, it's pretty clearly stated in the in the plain writing of the Constitution there that. If a law doesn't have this effective date, that it doesn't take a, take effect until 90 days after it's been you know signed by the governor. So that's a uh, that's a I don't know. It's it's kind of one of those like rule book things where you're like, oh man. Uh, but then they've got this retroactivity clause that they've they wedged in there, and they and the legislature says, well, the retroactivity clause makes it so that we can so the payments are retroactive, so it's all okay. Unfortunately, the interpretation the governor has here is that the the uh, the effective date means that the the bill doesn't go into effect until 90 days, which means the retroactivity doesn't take effect until 90 days in the future. So then you're you're you can't uh, spend that money until the retroactivity becomes re retroactive. <laughs> Does that make any sense? It's like you, it's not activated. You haven't tapped the card yet. The uh, the, the, the retroactivity doesn't matter until the law is effective, essentially, is what their argument is. And I, I can actually kind of get on board with that thinking. What did you think of that when that came out? Yeah, I mean, I think I think you're 100% right there, that you kind of see that sort of piece in a nutshell, and you're like, well, okay, you know, if the, the rule that says that the retroactivity 
is okay doesn't become a rule until later on and sure i yeah i think you can kind of start to see how that sort of pieces together you know but the, again <clears throat> is that how is that how it's intended right right and then you start thinking about like okay so well the game designers in this case the the folks that wrote the alaska constitution like they probably didn't intend to give the minority like this huge bargaining chip of a of a two thirds vote over the effective date because like the the legislative session ends pretty regularly uh, within that ninety day window where where there would be a shutdown without the effective date clause. So does that mean the the legislature must pass a budget ninety days before the next fiscal year, or else you're you're handing a supermajority a supermajority vote leverage over to the minority? So like. Thinking about it that way, you're like, that can't be the intent of this. That can't be what they were trying to do, right? I mean, it, it's almost though like, you know, the board game designers never included a rule that says you can't just throw the board game on the floor, right? Like, there's that's not <laughs> contemplated in the rules. And that's kind of, I think, part of it is that a lot of what we're kind of seeing now um, is sort of a weaponization of, like, things that were kind of never really conceived of. Like, you would never – I don't think everyone, anyone ever really anticipated – like 14 people being able to shut down government over whatever, you know, like over, over kind of miscellaneous things. And I think that's, I mean, you look at kind of the talk about um, the constitutional budget reserve, the three quarter majority, a three quarter vote that's needed for that. The idea there behind it was that it would help limit spending, right? That it would make it difficult, more difficult to spend. But what we found in effect is that it's actually led to more spending where because it leads to people kind of negotiating and sort of buying votes in some way. So it's sort of it's a weird sort of difference between, you know, how the rules were sort of intended, the spirit of the law and the letter of the law. Right. Those are like kind of two different things. And we're sort of seeing, I think, uh, you know, people who just sort of were never really kind of players that were never really kind of co- contemplated when they were writing the rules coming in and, and looking at them and saying, Hey, we could, uh, we could really make some, make some fun here. You know? I mean, maybe, so maybe, maybe it's like a munchkin situation where you've got someone interpreting the rules in a way that weren't, in, you know, wasn't ever intended, but also like, it's possible that the people who created the rules were doing it in a way that didn't, contemplate this because that's just not anything that could ever happen under their system. So I, um, and I, I don't know if that's real. <laughs> let me, let me get into the weeds here because I don't think I'm being especially we're, it was because we're, we're already not in the weeds. No, we're going deeper into the weeds. So I, I love any excuse I can find to, uh, listen to the tapes of the constitutional convention. We have, uh, a very young state in Alaska and because we have such a young state, you know, what are we 62 years old? We, we have, um, we don't have a lot of like precedents, first of all, so that's always makes things difficult. No one's really decided a lot of this stuff uh, in any kind of you know. There's not a lot of court cases to fall back on, but um, but we do have access to the the minutes and the and the audio recordings of the Constitutional Convention, and I love listening to them. So um, so I went back to like try and suss out what are these people thinking? Like why did they set it up so that so that the effective date works in this way. And here's, let me get into kind of what I found. So um, first of all, the um, the question about the effective date comes out of uh, what was an emergency act. So it's, it wasn't an effective date clause originally, it was an emergency act. And what, what happened is if you had a law 
that was an emergency, you could pass it immediately. Otherwise, you had to wait 90 days. And so back in territorial Alaska, this existed because they had the option of a rep- referendum. And so if you, if you passed a law like, okay, Matt, uh, no one is allowed to cross the street uh, after 8 p.m., and then the people of Alaska decide, okay, well, that's a ridiculous law. We're going to start a referendum and get it t- overturned. Uh, that gives them time before the law is enacted to get rid of it uh, or to take action against it. And so, um, so that referendum is, is a really important thing. And I'm going to go ahead and just play this piece of, uh, this is from, uh, what is this, day 39 of the Constitutional Convention. Emergency act has emergency clause on there, you can't do it. Uh, this is Sweeney. Mr. Johnson's been trying to get the floor, and I'll give you a, give it to you, Nay, Mr. Johnson. Well, Mr. Chairman, it occurs to me that we're confusing the issue a little bit here by the fact that once we become a state, this matter of emergency laws will no longer be present because the minute the legislature passes a law and it's signed by the governor, it becomes valid immediately unless it has some restraining clause within its own provision. This emergency clause procedure was set up strictly for the territory of Alaska because any law that's passed by the legislature without an emergency clause does not become effective until 90 days after the adjournment. And uh, it's that, to overcome that uh, procedure, that this emergency clause was inserted in the Organic Act and does give the territorial legislature the right to pass laws with an emergency clause when, whereby they become effective immediately upon passage and approval. But once we become a state, the legislature would have the right to pass laws and that would become effective immediately upon signature by the governor. So I don't see the necessity for such unless a... Our, unless, Mr. Johnson, the legislative provisions of our Constitution uh, impose a similar... Well, that might be. Yeah. I hadn't gone... I'd like to answer Mr. Johnson that practically all the states that I've looked into uh, have a, uh, a provision that the legislature may attack an emergency upon any act that they pass. For the purpose. If they don't put that on there, it takes 90 days, just exactly the same as it does in Alaska. <laughs> Anyways, I love all the harumph harumphing there. There is um, very much harumphing, yeah. Yeah, and, and it's really good. And so basically, you know, the, this was set up to to give people the option to, to have a referendum. And the, another interesting piece of this is if you're, if you're listening to that audio, he mentioned uh, that the effective, their, their effective date clause, the, the Emergency Act, took place 90 days after the adjournment of the legislature. So, um, so if, you know, if we'd kept around, if that had been in, in place, if that had stuck around, right now our, you know, the 90 days would, would take place from, what did they adjourn like three days before the end of the fiscal year? Yeah, <laughs> I mean, so it's um, it's really wild, and I you 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 can tell that this wasn't their intent because the legislature in the Constitution goes 120 days, and the fiscal year begins in July. So they would be shutting down the government every year under the <laughs> every basically every year. The, the government would just have to shut down for a couple of months while we waited for the effective date to take place unless an effective date clause was passed. So it, it's it's a weird 
it's a weird rule to have. And if you, I think you can kind of get to their thinking if you go and you read the constitutional section on referendum. So the whole reason we have this this law, this effective date clause, and the Emergency Act in 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 uh, territorial Alaska is to provide the citizens with access to like a window of access to cast a referendum to put a referendum question on the ballot to to overturn a, a ridiculous law that they don't like and so take a look at alaska at the constitution under uh the restrictions placed on referendum and it says this is uh, article 11 section 7 it says the referendum shall not be applied to dedications of revenue to appropriations to local or special legislation, or to laws necessary for the immediate preservation of the public peace, health, or safety. I think what we're seeing here is that the the, the folks that wrote our Constitution never intended for the effective date clause to apply to budgets. And it doesn't necessarily come through in the plain reading, but I think the deeper you dig into the Constitutional Convention minutes and kind of like what was there, what was the government, what was the territorial government structure like at the time, I think it's pretty clear that this doesn't even have any bearing on <laughs> on on budgets. And so I think that was and I you know I'm just an armchair guy here so <laughs> reading the rule book trying to make my you know posting my my hot take on the forum but I think that the uh, you know I think if the if the if the Alaska courts get into this I think that 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 that's how they'll come down too um, and it'll be interesting to see if they take it up like they, there's a there's a case right now that just may not even happen um, because the <laughs> governors trying to sue the legislature which is also not that's allowed that's explicitly the, also yeah forbidden right, so, in the in the thing so and they've they've taken a real interesting path in saying like we're not actually suing the legislature we're suing the what was it uh, legislative uh affairs agency affairs, affairs agency right so um but but then there yeah it's a i listened to the the arguments on this so right now this case uh right today it's uh uh, July 24th, they just had the uh, oral arguments on basically whether or not this is even a legal lawsuit yesterday. And um, the gist of it is basically, you know, is, it, you know, the state and the, or sorry, the legislature sort of is arguing that basically that what matters here is the practical intent of it, which is the le- you know governor is definitely trying to sue the legislature and like knows he can't directly sue the legislature. So he in like communications he even said like i am going to tell the attorney general to sue the legislature and find a way to do it and now the state's saying well you can't look at that don't look at that stuff um, yeah. it's really <laughs> nothing yeah. the governor says is true don't believe him what yeah, you? <laughs> and, yeah and so it's this really bizarre case i mean i think it, I mean, it really does like I, this whole underlying issue about the effective date is like a really i think it would be great to have it settled right it would be great to have this issue but then in the course there's this other layer of rules that are are, are kind of getting in the way on whether or not we'll even know that this is going to be taken up and so and honestly right. like so i've in the in the pandemic i've been really getting into um warhammer right and <laughs> it is notorious for having like layers and layers upon rules and so you have like the core rule book and you have all the codexes and then you have like pdf uh updates they issue every couple months and and kind of keeping it all in like one place and together and straight is like this monumental like challenge on its own and it's kind of feeling like that here where it's like all these sort of different 
like rules and then also like the, i guess like you can kind of almost call like the update the pfd up or pdf updates that they put out is kind of like all the supreme court rulings right it's like where they are weighing in to sort of uh offer you know guidance like this is what it's supposed to mean and and so having everything all together so in that case too um you know there are they're referencing other supreme court cases that have you know sort of bearing on this and that and and keeping it all straight is like this really i mean yeah there's a reason why we're 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 sitting here and and going through all this this is really kind of it's really interesting and sort of complicated and wonky and it kind of like activates that part of your brain where you're trying to figure it all out and what it all means and how it all works together well and it has a practical effect right so if this if the courts don't just don't take up this case, if they don't make a decision, um, which may happen, that then what happens next year? Like next year, we're setting ourselves up for a situation where the governor has declared how he interprets this law, and the legislature is now going to be in a situation where if if the majority doesn't pass their budget before, uh, you know, before ninety days prior to the uh, to the to the end of the fiscal year, uh, early, you know, early April, then. The, they're handing the minority a huge bargaining chip, the, the ability to shut down the government uh, if they don't get what they want. This, this, is a, this is a big deal because it's going to, it's going to force a lot of action next year uh, if it's not resolved. And it looks like it, there's a good chance it may not be resolved. Yeah, and the interesting thing, too, is that you know, the question is, okay, well, if, if the governor's interpretation is right and, and the legislature does you know, want to basically do an end run around the minority, the answer, right, is to pass a budget at a time. Um, but the problem with that is that, first of all, once you give the budget over to the governor, he has 20 days to review it. So you have to actually, it's not just 90 days, it's 110 days. And then, honestly, the governor could just veto it, right? And can, he could say, no, I do want to be able to maintain the leverage for my minority. And so he could veto it and send it back and they would have, you know, three and a half months to try to do something with it. And so, I mean, again, I think it it's like all these sort of, it's a weird interaction of rules where you're creating a system that I, you know, I guess if you were to go back to those constitutional convention days where you have those guys kind of harumphing, would you, would is anybody putting together a situation where, well, we could have a governor who's be working together with 14 members of the house to shut down government effectively and completely like bring everyone to, to um to bow down to this one thing and it was like do, do you think that was that you know it was clearly not anticipated and whether or not like the rules that they set out like allow that is you know that's sort of that's the question that is before potentially 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 before the courts here and so um how it ends up playing out it's gonna be really interesting because it you know it kind of gets into those issues of you know the spirit of the law versus the intent of the law versus the letter of the law and all those sort of different elements that play together honestly it's sort of like it to me sort of um like encapsulates a lot of where alaska is right now like we are a you know a young state that is kind of starting to grow almost sort of outgrow some of the things that were set up 60 years ago you know there are you look at the permanent fund for example right we are all of a sudden you know, relying on a source of investment revenue as our main source of income. And that's like completely kind of, you know, even the PFD laws are kind of not really, didn't really anticipate that this being how it works now, right? And so the question I think is, you know, how well suited are some of these laws, as well as how to, to today's realities, as well as like how suited 
are these laws to today's like political realities too, right? Yeah. Another court case that just that just happened was with with the recall, and that was pretty significant too, because basically this the Alaska Supreme Court said that the people of Alaska have the right to recall essentially on any grounds they they want. Um, you know that that if there's enough people that want to recall a politician, they can just do it, and that's. Um, you know, it's, well, it's that was well. Of, I mean, I mean, they have to find some level of grounds, right? The grounds have to at least kind of meet. But, but whether but the or court, not those the are court's serious, not going to vet those grounds though for like whether they're not going to do a litmus test of like these are or aren't, um, yeah, you know, legal grounds. Basically, if the people think these are legal grounds, it's uh, then then they are. So if it's if, a, yeah, it's like if these are legal grounds and if their accusations are true, do they? amount to this and their their answer in pretty much all those cases is yes yeah and i think that you know that for me the the constitutional thing that this kind of all goes back to when you're talking about like the rule book and the and you know who makes these rules like we don't have a game designer really right we don't have the you know the people from the constitution are going to get vic fisher to come in and like say well this is what i meant and then that's what everyone does the person who ultimately decides is us and and if you look at article one section two the source of government it says all power is inherent in the people all government originates with the people is founded upon their will only and is instituted solely for the good of the people as a whole. And like that's that's the section of the Constitution that I think a lot of this boils down to is that we're the ones who decide the rules that we live under as a society. And there's going to be times when these rules conflict, and there's going to be uh, times when we have to make decisions about what to do when rules are in, in are in conflict. And so um, ultimately we all get to kind of decide that together by arguing about it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think that's, that's an interesting point. And you go, you kind of go back to the, the permanent fund, right? And there's all these sort of arguments about like, well, what was the intended purpose of the permanent fund? Right. And I think there was a, a legislative hearing recently where it was, I think Clemtillion or someone along those lines is basically saying like, look, you know, we argued about it. We fought about it. We weren't really all that, all that settled when we first were. And the whole idea is that you guys are supposed to figure it out now. And I think it's it's kind of I think there's a really interesting sort of like push and pull with some of this stuff where we are kind of, you know, sitting and arguing over what people intended years and years ago. But the whole idea behind all of this is that it's supposed to be kind of a you know, it's a living document that is supposed to be updated and changed. And, um, you know, the interpretations and laws and all this sort of stuff kind of are supposed to evolve along with it. And so when we talk about like, you know, what. Hammond's intention of behind the permanent fund and the dividend were like they're interesting and they're important but they're not necessarily like the end all and be all of it either right and so you know like w as far as board games go right we're kind of at a point where we're you know figuring out the next edition or we're figuring out the home rules yeah the house it, rules right? Right? the house rules <laughs> yeah. and it's like you know this stuff isn't clear so let's do it in a way let's interpret it in a way that's you know the maximum amount of fun or, or whatever you know the, yeah. the way that or works the least out, amount right? of or the least amount of pain yes so <laughs> right so i i mean that's interesting you bring that up because there's um uh andrew halcrow has a has a uh, kind of an op-ed podcast that he's doing through the adn and he put out an, an episode recently that uh, basically laid out the case for like Dunleavy is trying to uh, just make government difficult so that he can say, hey, let's throw it all out. 
and have a constitutional convention. Um, and I think that, you know, we've seen that desire. You, you know, you and I talked about this a couple of years ago when, when, when Dunleavy came in and he very nearly had a majority in the House and the Senate, um, you know, he could have just voted had he got that, he could have just voted for a constitutional convention with a kind of a simple majority of the legislature, which is terrifying. Um, and, you know, like what what we're seeing now is a lot of pressure to add add pieces to the Constitution, to change change the rules, to reinterpret things. Some of that's coming from this fiscal pressure that the state's under, um, and some of it's coming from just sort of like growing pains. Um what are what are some of the things like instead of looking back let's look forward a little bit we have a special session coming up um and just in in the next what week or two there's going to be another special session and basically they're they've been tasked with like fix this fiscal problem we've been having for <laughs> for, for, for a while now um it doesn't feel very realistic to me that we're going to come to a conclusion, but I know that there's been a there's a working group that's that's doing some work on it. Tell me where we're at right now and what do you oh. see ahead for this for this special session? Oh man, you know, honestly, I I didn't have a whole lot of hope for this thing to start off with. I'm going to be honest. I mean, I think the 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 logistic, the pure logistics of being able to figure out, you know, what has eluded state government for really like decades now. Uh, like a durable fiscal plan, um, it was it was always going to be a hard task to do in three weeks, right? Like we haven't been, been able to do it for thirty years. Um, to do it in three weeks was was wild, and you know it's pretty much proved to be that sort of thing. So they're trying to work on a you know their their whole idea is that they're working towards like a basic foundational knowledge of the problem, which I think like makes a good point, which is like a lot of people are kind of playing with a whole sort of different set of assumptions that make kind of reaching a conclusion very difficult. So it's all to say not a lot's happening there. And I am not particularly hopeful that they're going to be going into this session a week from now with like a grand sort of solution figured out. What's the what's the board game analogy to this working group? They're getting together to like they're not necessarily reviewing the rule book, but kind of review reviewing the intent of the game or the or like the monster like. like I mean, it's almost <laughs> deciding. Yeah, it's like it's how, what, what kind of it's almost sort of deciding like either what board game we're gonna play or like how many pieces of the board game we're gonna get to be able to use. Like so it's like board game know, setup time. It's like which expansion are we gonna play with? Yeah, are we gonna use the taxes expansion? Are we gonna use the you know endowment? expand so um so the, so you know part of this whole discussion right is sort of this underlying push to really change sort of some fundamental things that are part of the alaska constitution you know so the governor has gotten has has several kind of ideas that are in there the spending limits uh makes it really hard to pass taxes you enshrine the the, the dividend in, in state law to, at a rate that you probably can't afford um so all these sort of different elements are coming together and you know, I think, you know, it was always going to be a long uh, shot to get anything actually done here, I think. Um, I think there are, you know, there's, you know, a combination of just doing the jo underlying jobs really hard. I think there are people now who are looking at it and going, well, if we just wait for, like, we could get this deal done with Dunleavy or we could wait a year and get a deal done with maybe a different governor who is not going to be putting these sort of, like, constraints on the conversation which you know, that's a whole other conversation to have. But I'd, I'd, um, no, no, stop! I want to have that conversation. Like, what? 
do you do you think it's i mean there's been this kind of like fire lit of like we need to do this now we need to do this soon this needs to happen but there's also this sense that we're kind of over the edge of the fiscal cliff already and maybe if we're already sailing through the air we can just sail through the air a little further um what is what yeah i mean it like do we need to do this this year do we need to like is it do or die time or can we just sort of wait until we don't have dunleavy around anymore and then make some real decisions i mean i i don't really know honestly i mean the it's sort of it's all a matter of amount of risk you want to be able to take with it right and so you know the risk of you know massive market correction that wipes out a bunch of the value of the permanent fund is like that's a that's a risk that we're always going to have right it could happen tomorrow right and um it can and, happen tomorrow, Matt. Tomorrow's Sunday. Oh, right. Yes, it could happen on Monday. <laughs> we could open up the markets and they could just be obliterated, right? But, um, you know, in some sense, like, you know, the, uh, as we've kind of seen, you know, the, you know, it's going to take something really wild, right, for, like, people to stop making money in investment world, right? Like, the stock market is, you know, there's sort of, it's sort of, sort of so divorced from stuff that, like, you know, you, it's kind of going to work as it is. And so... I, I kind of I don't you know I'm I'm not an economist I'm not a, a stock market trader or whatever so like opining all that stuff's a little beyond me but you know I think that you look at you know the the argument from the governor has been that yeah we could do every you know we could pay out big dividends because we have lots of money in in our savings accounts in, in the investment accounts and that's kind of true and so uh, the sort of idea that's coming forward now is that like okay well maybe maybe we do end up you know, signing on the dotted line for a bigger PFD, but maybe instead of paying out that bigger PFD right on the front end before we figure out how to pay for it, we got it. We can sign on the lot. Of, we can agree to do the bigger PFD, but it doesn't come into place until we get all the other parts in place. And I think that kind of makes some. That's that's sort of trying to you know. I think uh, kind of thread the needle there on it, but. Yeah, I think that you kind of you though if the whole argue if the governor's whole argument is that we can do all this because we've got a lot of money, then the then the, therefore that you know the logic should apply that you know we can also wait a year you know and not sort of pay out a bunch of you know because I think kind of kicking it down the road is almost cheaper than paying out big PFDs yeah. at this so, point. So, so aside aside from the the time timing component of like the the urgency aside from the urgency of of developing a more stable fiscal plan for the state um what other leverage does the governor have to kind of get the things he wants and what are what are the things he wants i mean it's 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 diminishing quickly first his his leverage and so the main sort of piece of leverage that i would think that he has right now is over the power cost equalization program another this is cracking out a whole other rule book right here but so the constitutional budget reserve this is the whole sweep and reverse sweep issue it's a three-quarter basically um as long as there we have like a iou to the c the constitutional budget reserve money at the end of the year that's left over gets to get swept into there to pay back our iou and so typically we like do the three-quarter vote and it puts all that money back uh but right now, there's a lot of people who are basically looking at that leverage and saying, "Look, let's let's get our PFD, let's get all our constitutional amendments, like let's get anti-abortion language, let's get you know all this sort of different changes in state law." And that's kind of so. This asking price is becoming really like. What, and hold but on, it, let me pause you just there for a second. So you're talking about the the CBR and yeah. the reverse sweep, and part of that is is this idea that. Um, 
well, so the, the the CBR is basically this like bank account that we're taking loans from essentially, right? So like mm-hmm. we we owe it billions of dollars and we're supposed to pay that back. Um, and the uh, the other thing that's a part of this equation is the dedicated funds clause, right? Like you, the legislature is not allowed to dedicate funds that basically tie up future legislatures, right? Right. So, so and, the Constitution says, uh, and, and I, 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 again, I'm like, okay, what are we talking about? Dedicated funds. I'm going to go read this. The, the proceeds of any state tax or license shall not be dedicated to any special purpose except as provided, yada, yada, yada. And so um, the interesting thing there is that, like, the dedicated funds part of our Constitution only applies to state taxes and licenses. Um, and right now, a lot of our money is investment revenue like we're bringing money in from things that are not state taxes and licenses so i kind of wonder if we might be able to have some dedicated funds for things like education or power cost equalization or whatever it is yeah i mean yeah and we're not really tying the legislature's hands if the legislature is creating something that the legislature can undo right and so, yeah, so anyways, and this whole thing, too, I mean, it, the, there's another Dunleavy angle to it, which is, so the, the, the kind of getting back to the leverage here is governor in 2019 decided that power cost equalization, this program that helps people in sort of small rural communities, um, you know, cope with the extremely high cost of creating energy in these communities. Um, so he decided that all of a sudden that this money is subject to the sweep. And so therefore, without the three-quarter vote, this program essentially dies. Right. And so all these people's energy bills have doubled this year. Yeah, it's like 80,000 people that live in mostly rural Alaska. And so this is kind of, I think, to to them, it's a, you know, it's a it's an important, very important program to these communities. It's a you know, valued program to those legislators. So I think well, the idea and, is definitely— And there's a fairness thing too, right? So yes. like the idea is that— you know, I live in Juneau, and if if the state funds a major energy project here, I benefit from it. But it's difficult to do something like that, and that reaches you know all these rural Alaskan communities. And so basically, they're getting a cash stipend instead of this giant energy project. Right, and I think it kind of again going back to the like Alaska is a changing place with like changing things. Is that yeah, the idea is that you know instead it's basically the same idea as durable infrastructure. It's a $1 billion roughly endowment that spits out enough money to cover a handful of programs every year. And so, you know, the idea that we can, you know, there, so in addition to it being tied up in this, there's sort of this argument that, well, it's unfair that they have this sort of dedicated thing that doesn't have to compete with everything else. It's almost like saying like, oh no, the, the, our economy's going, or, you know, our budget's going south. So let's go hack up some one of those dams and sell it for rubble you know <laughs> it's like it, it you know it's sort of and i think it, it's difficult kind of to wrap your head around the idea of like an endowment as infrastructure or as sort of a was a more durable thing and and um and i think that's sort of the difficulty really in understanding how the you know the alaska permanent fund uh investment you know the golden salmon that you know that you know spits out revenue every year like works and i think that it is is difficult i think for people to kind of like reckon with a little bit and 
But I think being, I think it's been really important to see a lot of the historical context of the power cost equalization brought into here. But so yeah, so that's also the that's also the subject of a whole lawsuit too. Yeah. So as we're going in, this is the one sort of major piece of leverage that the the governor has over the legislature right now um, for a special session that starts on the second of August, and there's going to be oral arguments on this case about whether or not power cost equalization is subject to the sweep on August 5th. So, you know, it could all of his sort of leverage could quickly evaporate, you know. Yeah, and that's a pretty notable case in terms of like just who's involved. It's it's a massive coalition of of uh, Alaska Native organizations and, mm-hmm. and energy providers and um, local governments. Local yeah. governments. Yeah, it's just like I mean, it seems like some some real firepower there. Yeah. <laughs> um yeah, and I you know, I think if they're if they're all on board, they must feel like they have a pretty strong case because it doesn't seem like something you chase after sort of recklessly. Well, and um, the wild thing about it, too, is that so the argument, the, basically the argument that the governor used to, to grab PCE could be pretty much also applied to the permanent funds investment um, earnings and the earnings uh, reserve account. You know, that, so if this account becomes sweepable, then this other account becomes sweepable. And it just kind of like it, it's again, it's sort of these sort of questions that, yes, we should probably have like a solid answer to. But again, the game designers probably didn't anticipate somebody flipping the table. Right. Well, there was and no it, permanent fund to think about when you were right. writing the state constitution. Right? And, and so all these sort of elements are sort of interacting with each other in a, in a sort of unusual way that I think is is really interesting and but again you know it kind of goes back to you know like these really sort of novel and kind of bad faith readings of the rules that have enabled um us to get where we're at right and so i mean i think that's what is to me is really interesting is that it's sort of taking you know it's taking somebody that is sort of intentionally trying to break the rules or bend the rules i guess to to try to figure out what the rules actually say for once because it's a lot of this, almost so much of this stuff is sort of operated on kind of either precedent or kind of common under shared understanding of of how things work and we're kind of we're quickly finding out that maybe that wasn't the you know yeah the erosion of norms right so yeah. it's, it's like things that we've always done are like are being called into question in sort of a, a radical abrupt way where it's like you know the the example of of Dunleavy doing this press release after everyone had gone home for the, you know, this legislative session, this past legislative session ended, they passed the budget. They assumed that they had staved off a government shutdown. Everyone had flown home. And then they did this big press thing that said like, Hey, actually you're wrong. And we're, and the government's going to shut down and it's going to be all your fault. And it's, and it's because we've decided to read the rules differently than they've ever been read. Um, You know, like, that's a weird, weird gotcha move to pull. Like you, you'd think that they'd, if they actually wanted to solve some of these problems, that they'd be discussing some of this with people. You know, they'd be saying like, "Hey, okay, fair warning. This is how we think about this particular rule. Uh, you know, so you're going to want to get your budget passed on time." <laughs> but the, right. Uh, I mean that, and and so I think you know. Um, going back to Halcrow, uh, his point, right, is that, you know, maybe this is all working toward a constitutional convention, right? And so the other thing that the Alaska Constitution includes, right, is the provision that says every 10 years we shall ask the voters, shall there be a constitutional convention where we are going to 
basically reopen the rules for reinterpretation. We'll come out with the second edition of Alaska, you know, the Alaska state rules, right? And so um, the voters have always rejected this, right? But so now the worry, I guess the concern is that the governor will try to use all of this sort of failure, this sort of failure that he is kind of failure and sort of uncertainty that he is really kind of fomented and then and try to use it into a campaign to say we should reopen the Constitution. And, and then it kind of becomes like off to the races. Right. I mean, this is such a big issue that I think we were planning on kind of diving into it in more depth on its own. But it's... yeah, let's let's talk about this in our in a in a next episode. We we did an interview a couple of years ago with Gordon Harrison that we've never aired. And Gordon Harrison was the author of the uh, Citizen's Guide to the Alaska State Constitution and is really knowledgeable about um, kind of how all of this came to be and how it works and case precedents and all that. And so um, we can go back and we'll listen to that interview. And, and I think it's still really relevant because it basically dealt with the constitutional changes that Dunleavy wanted to make when he first came into office and kind of the origin and where those were coming from. Um, and yeah, I think it's, I think, you know, I think it's possible that that might be what they want is to just let's open up Alaska's constitution and change the rules. Um, there was a, an aspect to our constitutional convention that was really interesting. And that is that the folks who wrote our constitution did so as like, uh, almost a speculative document. Like the people who were, who were at the table were the people who believed Alaska should be a state. And so a lot of the like anti-statehood folks weren't part of that discussion. Um, and so that kind of viewpoint wasn't really represented. Um, you know, the, the terror anti-government, the anti-government viewpoint. viewpoint wasn't as represented. And so we have a, a constitution that, that believes in government. And so when you bring in a pessimistic attitude towards government that wants to change the government, now you get a very different discussion about what a constitution should be. Yeah. And I think, I mean, I, I, and you know, the whole, logistical element of like just how you hold a convention how you set up the rules for it how all these sort of things play out to me is like this really interesting thing where if you could do it all in good faith it would be i think it'd be a great kind of exercise it'd be really really interesting i think that the problem of course the concern with it is that it's not going to be in good faith because what in politics is truly good faith anymore but like you know, I think that the so I you know it's going to be really interesting to see what kind of campaign comes together around this because I feel like a, a pretty salient argument against all of it is going to be like, hey, they want to mess with your constitution, don't let them. And, you know, and the they could be anybody. It could be you know the oil companies, um, the bar association, um, you know. Uh, Lescara or you know drag queens who read at libraries right like all there's all these sort of I think everybody has got like their boogeyman basically right yeah. that is is you know somebody that wants to get into it and so I think this idea that a constitutional convention is going to be this like this you know windfall for you know far-right conservatives is like kind of fantasy you know it's it, it it requires them to to be basically be able to stack the cards in their favor the whole time through well, and I, I, I don't, I don't think know that's unrealistic that I think that they could stack the cards in their favor because there isn't a lot of there isn't a lot again getting back to the rule book there's there isn't yeah. a very clear rule book on what a constitutional convention looks like so once you open the door to constitutional convention it's really going to be a battle about who gets to sit at that table you know there's right. no guarantee that it's going to be the people you want right but again it's 
Exactly. There's no no guarantee it's gonna even if, you know for Dunleavy, right? Like, there's no guarantee it's uh, gonna yeah, be the way that he wants. Yeah, but you're in a pretty strong position if you're the governor. <laughs> right, but I think what the uh, sorry, we'll we'll save this whole thing for another yeah, day. Yeah, we can talk about it some more. I'm, I need to, I need to look at the rules again too. But I think it doesn't the legislature set up the rules for how it work. I don't know. Let's look it up, I think and we'll get back to this uh, yeah. in a future future conversation. So. Okay, so we've got <laughs> special session coming up. Uh, the state fiscal crisis will be f- solved in a matter of months. That's great. Um, everything's going to be everything's great. Everything's going to be good. Um, elections are around the corner. We've already got um, exciting things happening with the the senator um, the, in the race there. Uh, Kelly Shabaka is running against Murkowski and has already uh, gone out and maybe violated some some fishing license regulations, which is like a big no-no in Alaska. Um, I mean, that's what I find is so funny because like when I came to Alaska, it seemed to me that there were like two things that were like mortal, like grave mortal political sins. Yeah. And it was fraudulent applications for the PFD. I think that was that just like a death knell to your campaign. Yeah. And then fish and game violations. Yep. Like I remember guys, um, uh, people, doing like local legislative races or local uh assembly races and there were people who were like had a wanton waste on their ticket or on their docket and that like sunk them they were just it was that was the end of their campaign right there and so to like so sort of like clearly at the very least be sort of fishy about it is is really interesting to me yeah it's a it's an incredible blunder and yeah and the other thing is like the the communications uh, about her campaign appears to be coming out of like Virginia. So it's, um, I'm sure there'll be a lot of, a, a lot of fun stuff uh, as that evolves. Um, yeah. I'm really excited about ranked choice voting still. Um, uh, that's you know, great. I mean, this I think isn't, that... this isn't Murkowski against Chewbacca because there are going to be two more people in there. Like, who, yeah. And who knows how that changes things? Yeah. I think it's like a lot of, I mean, I think that's going to be really interesting. It's going to like, I mean, What's going to happen, what probably will happen is like Shabaka and Dunleavy will all win on the first, you know, they'll have like 55% of the vote and it just won't even matter. But like, mm. but I think that, you know, I, I do think that this idea of the range choice voting is really, really interesting. And I think like it's been fun whenever I get to write about it, any sort of election stuff, I feel like it's almost like fun to be able to put in this like, also, by the way, there's a completely new election system coming up. All bets are off. Like we don't know if any of the polling makes any sense anymore. We don't know how the campaigning works anymore. We don't know about any of the, like. There's, you know, there's almost a strategic element too, which is like, you know, you look at maybe the U.S. Senate race. Like, who are those other two candidates going to be? Right? Are the Democrats going to try to run someone serious? Are they running someone who's going to say, vote for me, but rank Murkowski as number two? Are you going to have a far right person in there? It's. I think it's awesome. I think it's great. Yeah. yeah. I think that that is very important. I, I've, I've written a ton of letters to people. I think that there need to be real, like honest to goodness, progressive candidates running because um, the, the Democrats in Alaska have really just sort of like, I don't know, kind of given up on running their own candidates. They've kind of handed it over to the independents and the sort of middle ground Democrats who don't really have progressive ideals, um, you know, in favor of like trying to find someone who can maybe win. But now you've got a wider field. You can broaden the conversation. You really need to put those ideas out in the public sphere. And, you know, this this window of discourse, the Overton window, is, is something that's talked about in politics. And it's kind of the, the range of acceptable uh, discussion on any particular topic. Like, what are, what are people willing to say in the public sphere? Um, and what, what will the public allow people to say? Um, and in Alaska, 
it's really narrowed and it's really become very uh, conservative. And part of that is because Democrats aren't running on a statewide platform anymore. And so it'll be hopefully they'll put some people in who can articulate those views, even if they're even if they're not going to win. It's important to be part of that race. It's to be important to part of that be important to be part of that discussion. Um, you know, if you look back at the last election cycle, uh, you know, Medicare for all was this huge discussion topic on the national level, and it there wasn't a single candidate in Alaska who was willing to like go near it with a ten foot pole on the right. on the statewide level. And so, you know, you need someone that's going to be the like Bernie Sanders or the AOC that, you know, they aren't going to win. They aren't going to win in Alaska, but they're going to br- get people excited. They're going to bring them out to vote. They're going to, you know, there are Alaskans who are passionate about the environment. There are Alaskans who are passionate about, uh, you know, like indigenous rights or, you know, and uh, reconciliation and all kinds of stuff. And so I think that there, I think that there is room for that candidate as a, you know, third or fourth candidate to really change the conversation and say, Listen, I you know you should vote for me, but if you don't, this is the person I support. Right? Yeah, I think it, I think it's really yeah going to be really interesting on that element. I think, and that's I think the big thing is that like every single time I feel like I hear uh, a candidate in the legislature like stand up and be or not a candidate but a, a politician stand up and be able to like clearly enunciate and explain um, like progressive like talking points and progressive like priorities. I'm like, oh crap. That guy should run for, you know, Congress. That guy should run for Senate. That guy should run because it, it, I think that really, yeah, you're right. There's totally kind of a lack of that kind of values on that level. And I think uh, being able to to just be able to line them out more creates more room for everybody involved. And and I think having some, you know, it's like that's that to me. I think the idea of being able to like sit down and rank candidates on preference is like a really valuable tool and i think for a lot of people myself included like there's going to be more you know for so long right like elections are just uh almost a binary choice right it's either the guy that's like you're definitely don't like and the guy that's running against them right and and i think that being able to move to something where you are you're trying to appeal maybe more broadly right it's not uh, a lesser of two evils anymore it can be yeah. you can actually vote for like there's enough range in options that you can maybe vote for someone you actually want to win right exactly and i think it's a lot of fun i mean like that's i think a really great place to be at yeah all right so we started this episode on board games uh have you played any good board games lately do you have any recommendations do you have any uh board game thoughts you want to end on you know, I, yeah, actually, so uh, one of them, I think it was in the, the care package that you sent us at the beginning of the pandemic of board games. Um, Hanabi, we started playing that more. I played it once, like, early in the pandemic. It's this card game where um, you don't know what your cards you have in your hand, and you're trying to, like, get sort of suss out your partners, trying to give you clues about what is in your hand, and, and you're trying to basically... Uh, set up fireworks and you need to play cards in a certain order and stuff like that played it once really didn't like it played it again <laughs> and it like kind of clicked it was the sort of thing where it was you know takes a level of coordination that just like is sort of was really satisfying okay so i'm i'm in in the board game realm i'm gonna actually talk about a book and it's a it's a 532 page book called game theory in the age of chaos and it's a series of essays by mike selinker uh who designed games like uh uh, Betrayal at House on the Hill, 
Uh, he has a just incredibly long resume. Uh, Lone Shark Games is the name of his company. And this book, uh, Game Theory in the Age of Chaos, is a book of essays on board games and politics. And what he does is he is he looks at politics through the lens of a board game designer. And it is fascinating. I, and um, it's really interesting to and to look at the politics of the last several years um, and see these write-ups on like, why are people making the decisions? What's the tr- strategic choice being made here? Uh, what's the, what is the game design mechanic that is going on? Um, and, and I love all the parallels here between board games and politics. And I think that it's really a fun way to think about how we think. Um, so that's going to be my recommendation for <laughs> board game day. <laughs> Anyways, all right. I think that's a good episode. Uh, we'll, t- we'll talk some more uh, when I get back from camping and uh, uh, talk to you soon. Yeah, talk to you soon. All right. Goodbye, Alaska. Bye.